Hey, Connected Family, welcome. Today we have a special guest on the podcast and I'm so excited because I have stalked uh, this particular person for a really long time. I am aware of his testimony. I have listened to it multiple times, watched many YouTube videos. Um, so it's just really exciting to be able to bring this topic uh, to our church, to our listeners. Um, and for anyone who really is interested in just what the journey looks like for people who are struggling with same-sex attraction and for people who have lived in the homosexual uh, life as well. So, um, yeah, really excited. All right. So now we'll uh, welcome Michael to the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. I wish I had a drum roll or something like more special, <laughs> like to be like, oh, here he is. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for like, making time. Like angels singing or yeah. something? Yeah, like lights, stars, yeah, something really fancy like that. But I don't have editing skills like that, so we're just going to go with with welcome. Um, but Michael, thank you so much. Uh, for those who don't know Michael, I thought we will go into a little bit about um, what his past was like. Uh, we're going to go into what his ministry looks like, and then um, we're just going to look and see what Michael can share with us as we minister to people within um, the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and especially with people amongst our church, um, people that are struggling with same-sex attraction. And um, maybe as he has ministered all over the world uh, to our church um, in this particular area, what things he can share with us is, as we go out to minister to them as well. And then lastly, we're going to see how does that affect our church? Uh, what can our churches do to become uh, the churches that Christ would want us to be to people who are coming to find Christ uh, within our churches? And yeah anything in between or fall in um in one of those questions as well uh so michael tell us a little bit about your past okay all right so um my first conscious moment that i remember any kind of identity at all was when i was about four years old and i remember this awakening or or awareness that um that i felt like i was a girl trapped in a boy's body and it wasn't even that complete. I just felt like I was a girl and I didn't know how to express that. I thought that, you know, I got shortchanged. I didn't know how to fix it, but I certainly didn't identify with the boys in the neighborhood, but I knew that I wasn't like my sisters. And, and so that was like a, um, a predominant theme always, every single day. I remember as I grew a little older and became aware that there was a God, I remember that I would pray to this God and ask him to make me a little girl and of course that never happened. And one of the things about children is they have a skewed um, reality about what's real and what's fantasy. And I remember that if I prayed hard enough that maybe God would answer that question for me because I didn't know how I had these thoughts that I was a girl, but I, I knew that I wasn't complete. I knew that I wasn't um, um, fulfilled until I could become this girl. It's interesting because when I came back to the church at 40 years old, I had two questions on my mind. I said to God, well, to Jesus in particular, I said, I want to know why I was transgender from birth and I want to know why I was gay. And and the gay wasn't even an issue until puberty, but I believe that the, the transgender also had an influence. And I think it's important to say that um, just because somebody is transgender does not mean they're gay. And just because mm -hmm. somebody is a feminine, like if a male is a feminine or if a girl is overtly masculine, it doesn't mean that they're gay. There are many things, there are many times that effeminate men can still be heterosexual, many times that yeah. masculine females can still be um, heterosexual as well. But um, to make that assumption is really cruel because then you're automatically locking somebody in 
to an identity that hasn't even been determined. But uh, for me, mm-hmm. at four years old, um, I I realized now that there were some things happening before I was even conscious. And if I could break this down a little bit, I think it'll also help with some of the the prejudice that we have within the church, and also maybe some of your listeners would identify. But for me, um, there was this thing that um, I heard about called epigenetics and cellular memory. And it's actually scientific, and they've proven that when the sperm and the egg come together, they bring with it the history of three to four generations before them. So what that means is that when my mom and, got, my mom and dad got together, um, that the, the history and the memory from three generations came through to me. So my mother was molested when she was a young girl by her father. My grandmother was molested by her stepfather, and my great-grandmother was a prostitute. So just on my mom's side alone, you can see the progression of the history of sexual sin. And and while I wasn't born gay, and because science still hasn't um, affirmed that, but um, I don't believe that I was born gay, but I was born with the hereditary tendencies for sexual sin. On my father's side, there was a lot of anger. My um, my dad's grandfather uh, was in jail because he shot and killed a man that he thought was sleeping with his wife. So we have sexual sin, and then we have anger management issues. So when I was subconscious, and I want to kind of go back to that a li- a- again— Um, between the ages of one and three, boys just start to realize that they're not like mom, that they're more like dad. And so there's this transition that has to take place where the little boy kind of leaves the safety and the comfort of the mom and he goes to the dad. So that's why little boys like to wear baseball caps like their dad. That's why they like to imitate them. All of this is what we call healthy gender stamping. And, and so what that means is during that time between one and three, and I wasn't even conscious, I don't even remember those years, um, consciously. But during that time, my dad was in the Navy, so he'd be gone many months at a time. But then when he was home, he was angry and raging, just like the the history of his family's generations. So my mom was quiet. My mom was stable. She was always there. And then I've got this wild card gender parent that is angry, loud, abusive, and unavailable. So somewhere along the line, there's another term, a scientific term called defensive detachment. And in my defense, I detached from my gender parent, which mm-hmm. was my dad. So somehow in this in this mind, um, I was a very sensitive child. And I think that um, my dad was frightening. And so I didn't want to be anything like that. And you're telling me that I have to be like that. And because I'm surrounded by girls, I had three sisters and my mom. So most of the time I was with them. I think that for me, it was like, no, no, this makes sense. I should be a girl. I don't want to be a boy. And because I rejected that, that was my focus. So by the time I got to four, there were already things that were um, mm-hmm. that were in motion subconsciously that were working so that, of course, I would think that I was born that way. Um, as I started to grow up and develop, I imitated my mom and my sisters. I wanted to wear their pretty dresses and have those pretty green and yellow shoes, you know, and carry a purse. But, you know, I got the brown or the black suit or the brown or the black shoes. And, and so everywhere I turned, it just seemed that you know, to be a girl was much more advantageous than to be a boy. Boys were aggressive and athletic. And um, I was a coordinated kid, but I, I certainly wasn't aggressive. And and so, again, I was constantly reminded that I didn't fit in or that I didn't measure up as a male. But I felt comfortable and, and I actually uh, preferred the company of girls growing up. One of the other things that I think is, go ahead. 
Can I just ask one question? Because I know yeah. when I have sat down with other Christians, and I will say, I mean, honestly, it's Christian that maybe aren't as understanding towards people within the homosexual lifestyle and people who have that type of, live that kind of life. And I, I, I completely understand it. I understand with the gender stamping. I understand with like the social environmental aspects of how we are molded and all that. So I completely understand. But for people who don't, for you to feel that you didn't fit into the male role or the boy role, whatever it is that you were at that time and according to your age, what did that look like? Was it that you just didn't want to play trucks? You mentioned about, you know, you weren't rough. You didn't like to wrestle or fight. Was Were they the factors that in your head you were like, I don't like to play like that, therefore I must not be a boy? Or was there something deeper or more profound that you were just like, you literally maybe felt you were, like they say, a girl in a boy's body? Or was it really just your observations of what our, our, our societal norms, therefore I'm not that, I must be the opposite? Because I think how you mentioned about your mum's like colorful clothes and you were stuck with like the plain black and brown. Like there's an aspect of that that almost falls into this idea like you were just were maybe more creatively minded. Maybe you were more attracted to colors, but as a result, by default, men just wear black and brown. So was it those factors when they all added up, you were just like, oh, obviously I must be the wrong gender? Well, Catalina, you you really caused me to think. And, and as you were asking that question, I was really kind of um, delving into my past to think, like, how was it that that could have influenced me? But I don't think that it was, um, it, it's almost like the comments that you were making were kind of after the fact. What was, what was contributing, I think, to the rejection of masculinity was the fact that my dad wouldn't let me play with dolls. My dad wouldn't let me dress up in, in my sister's or my mother's clothing. So remember, he was the parent that I rejected. In my defense, I detached from him. So anything that came from my father was definitely going to be viewed as, um, um, you know, that I was going to reject that or I didn't want that. So this is interesting. There was a time my mother said that, um, or my dad would tell the story that I was in a high chair. So I had to be between the ages of like one and, or, you know, maybe two or younger. But my mother was at the hospital um, having my sister. And my dad was making breakfast and he gave me half of a banana and I didn't want a banana. I guess I wanted whatever was cooking. And I took the banana and I threw it and my dad like picked it back up and he pulled the hairs off of it and he put it down and he told me to eat it. And then I, he said that I looked him dead in the eye and I picked up that banana and I heaved it across the room again. And my dad said that he picked me up and he spanked me. And of course he pulled the hair off of that half banana again and rinsed it underwater. You can imagine what the banana looked like, but he put it on my table and he said, eat it like that. And he said that the look on my face is that I looked him mm. dead in the eye while I was eating that banana with tears coming down my face. And he said, you look like if you had the strength that you would kill me. And mm. that to me is another sign that it's like, you know what? Because I had rejected him. I had defensively detached from him. And so I think that what happened is then when I became older and I was around the other boys, like everything aggressive, I hated. My dad would try to toughen me up and, and he was a cop. So he would take me out um, shooting guns. Well, that was aggressive again. And I didn't want anything to do. It was loud. And I didn't see it was pointless, like aiming at something. And of course, I couldn't hit it. So, of course, I'm even more emasculated. And I didn't measure up to what my dad wanted me to be. But I was only like six years old when he did that. 
So then he would take me out to attract attack train German shepherds for garden duty. I wanted to play mm. with the dogs. I wanted to pet them. And here, you know, I'm seeing yeah. these ferocious dogs just attack these men. And so everything my dad attempted to help me with really backfired the opposite because it only pushed me further away. Imagine this, Catalina. Imagine the power if my dad would have just gotten on the floor with me and colored in my coloring book. It doesn't mean that he had to feminize himself to be um, to connect with me, but there were appropriate ways that he could have identified and let me know that the things that I liked could be masculine also. But my dad was yeah. extremely macho, and I think for him, like that was like too far off the chart or whatever. But um, I think part of that rejection happened even in the subconscious ages, so that by the time I recognized that sports, I absolutely hated sports because my dad was crazy about sports. So mm. it was this constant conflict. There was always a contradiction. Um, I fit in with the girls and they were uh, they were not offensive to me. And then whenever I saw aggressive behaviors from boys, I think it reminded me of my father, which I had rejected. So I'm not even sure if all of that played into it. But from from what I remember, I think that all of that was the motivation for that. And um, so when the boys started to pick up on my mannerisms that were more feminine because I was imitating my mom and my sisters, then they would call me sissy, queer, little girl, faggot. So again, what they were doing is pushing further away. The one thing that I was desperate for, which was male affirmation, and, you know, and, and affirmation that I was OK as a boy. And even if I was a feminine, if I was included and accepted, all of that would have been very affirming for me. I needed to know that I was okay as I was, and that I didn't have to be a fake or a fraud or to put on something to be accepted by the other boys in school. But that message still follows me mm. even to this day. Mm. And I think I think when I have, because I have, like I mentioned to you before we started recording, um, honestly, through my whole life, I have just had homosexual people play a really important part in my life. Um, so I am an architectural interior designer in the firm, the design firm that I worked for. Um, my boss was gay and I worked there for five years. And so I was always around them. His partner worked in the office as well. So we were always, they were always together and we were always, you know, at the lunch table and working with different projects and clients. So I've always been around that. My best friend, her brother, uh, he was gay. So, and then, then I've just had people throughout my adult life as well that I've just been very close to who have also um, either been gay or have struggled with same-sex attraction. So I've had that. And as I've listened to their stories um, and also the Bible study uh, couple that I study with, as I listen to their story and I try and understand their past, it's so there's so many similarities to your story in their story. And then as I have looked at testimonies of people that have um, been converted and come to Christ and also found victory over their past, um, it's the same thing. There's so many like little factors in their childhood or in their youth that when it was all put together, ended up in them making the decisions that they made um, once they were able to make decisions uh, to basically make a, a choice as to what their sexual preference were. Um, so I think it's really important that we, whenever we speak with someone and for whatever whatever their sin is, we can sit down with someone who has, um, you know, a compulsive liar. If we sit down and trace back why they are like that, it's often linked to the fact that they've never been accepted. They've always tried to find people that will accept them, that they can belong to. And as a result, they found that lying. 
often worked. Um, sometimes there's a lot of guilt and shame, therefore they lie. So I think if we were to trace back people's past and understand their journey to this point, we would actually see a lot of factors that would show us why it has ended up being where it has. Um, but yeah, so what happened, uh, briefly, what happened that you are now in a ministry that is called Coming Out Ministry? What happened between your decision to become and live as a gay man to now being where you are today? Yeah, the, like that is such an enigma, <laughs> even to me to this day. And I've been walking with the Lord. This will be 20 years. Um, I've been walking with the Lord again. Um, you know what? When I came to the Lord at 40, I had lived 20 years as an openly gay man. I was also sexually addicted and um, I was unfaithful in every single relationship that I'd been in about five uh, during those years. Um, I had many situations where I had sex with men that would be dead three months later from AIDS. So I was out there. And, and I tell people that I was a poster child for the gay life because people will say, oh, you were really never gay anyway. And I said, really? I said I was a hairdresser and an aerobics instructor and you really can't get any more gay than that uh, unless you're an interior designer. But I like that, too. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So as I as I was coming into this relationship with Jesus Christ um, and that was through some miraculous circumstances. And and seriously, it was because I had three sisters that were praying for me. Um, mm -hmm. I wasn't praying for myself. I wanted nothing to do with a God that I thought had rejected me, you know, since birth. <laughs> And so um, when I came out as gay uh, at 20 years old, that was when the transgender issue was resolved because I realized that masculine behavior was much more um, uh, popular than, than a feminine behavior. And so I realized or I, I found out that if I wanted attention from men, that if I butched it up more, if I work out in the gym and dress differently and acted differently, I found that I got much more attention from men. And so that kind of slipped away and I was fine with my male body, but it really went the other way. It was like I went from one side to the other side where the, um, the sexual addiction began about my male anatomy and became obsessive about that. But um, so coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ, there was just no way I was going to give up my boyfriend. I had a rich boyfriend. I was making tons of money. We had opened a salon together. He ran radio stations. Um, we had the world by the tail. I had everything that the, that the world could offer, and yet God or Jesus was able to reach me. So when I accepted Jesus into my heart, um, my sister asked me what I was going to do with my boyfriend. I said, nothing, I'm gay. And I, I tried to change, and God never changed me, so this is who I am. But I did accept Jesus into my heart. And so from that moment, beginning that journey um, with Jesus was really difficult. Um, and yet it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I, I, I'm still shocked and amazed that a relationship with Jesus Christ, who I, I can't touch and I can't feel mm. him, but yet I could feel him affect me. And, and mm -hmm. that, kind of, that kind of compassion and tender love, that was, that was to a point where I said, if you want me out of that relationship, you're going to have to do it yourself. And God said, I'll get right on it. And within three weeks, my boyfriend broke up with me and I knew that God had spoken. But that didn't take away the history, didn't take away the memory of the things that I had indulged in. It didn't take away the, the emptiness. But as I was pursuing Jesus Christ during that time, and it took years, honestly, Catalina, it took years. But during that time, he really started to address the pain. He started to answer the questions, why I was transgender, why I was gay. Because what happened is I was so affirmed by girls and I didn't have friends that the immutable law of puberty is the sex that becomes the 
the, the sex that is the mystery becomes the attraction. So if I was mm -hmm. raised with the guys, you know, like guys do, and girls that are raised with other little girls, they affirm each other so that then when puberty comes, it's like, ah, what's this opposite sex, right? So when I came into puberty, I was so used to females and girls. I knew everything about girls. So the sex that was a mystery for me was actually my own. So starting off as transgender, hanging out with the girls. So then by the time puberty came, the sex that was a mystery for me was actually my own sex. So that's how that became sexualized. But I also want to point out that just because that was my story doesn't mean that that's everybody's story. And, um, mm -hmm. and, and I tell people, I go, stories are like fingerprints. You know, everybody's got one. Yes. And our stories are unique and they're totally different. So we can never assume that just because we've heard mm -hmm. one story of how someone's gay that that we cookie cutter, you know, that to be everybody's yep. experience. Um, but Jesus was faithful to me. And during the times when um, I would reject him and I would just say, this is too much. I'm going back. You know, he respected that. But he would always mm -hmm. woo me back to him because I would realize I would realize that what I was getting from Jesus Christ was so much more than what any man could ever give me. And mm -hmm. I'm still in shock each and every day that that a relationship mm -hmm. with Jesus Christ is still better than, for lack of a better Amen. word, getting, la getting laid, you know, so. Um, yes. So that's why I'm here. And my, so the min yeah. I really, can I just add to that? Because I think and this is what I have found and this is what I was telling you. I get a little frustrated because within the Christian church and obviously within Adventism, but I believe within Christian church in general, I believe that a lot of people are like, if we can just stop gay people having sex, they'd be fine. They'd be saved. And what I really get frustrated about that is because, like you said, it's not about the sex. It's not even about like the transgender issue. It's about finding everything in Christ. And what frustrates me about that is that a lot of people think that the solution for homosexuality or the, the solution for transgender is stop doing what you're doing. But what I, what I always say and to challenge people is that there are many Christians who have not found everything in Christ. There are many Christians, and me included, um, and I'll be totally straight, um, who have strived. And I'll be straight. <laughs> I didn't even mean to, but I'm glad you picked that one up. But, like, I'll be I'll be straight and serious and give you the truth and be totally honest and transparent. For those who have, have listened to the podcast in the past 12 months, I have strived to fill so many gaps with Christ. And I know it's really cliche. You know, there's a God-shaped void and there's a puzzle piece that only God can fill. That's really cliche. But I think until you come to that awareness that you're trying to fill that gap, that gap you're trying to put a puzzle piece in there with so many other things not just homosexuality not even sexual addiction not even like food addiction mine is clothes addiction um or even relational addictions because i believe like for me in the last year i realized i'm very codependent um i realized that my sin may not be of a sexual nature my sin may not be homosexual but my sin still is something that is taking away from the depth of relationship that god desires for me and just because I'm not in that kind of lifestyle doesn't mean that I am still shortchanging the depth of connection that I can have with God in another way. And I think as I have listened, and Jackie Hill Perry, I don't know if you're aware of, if you've heard of her. Okay, that woman, I just like, yeah, I have so much respect for her story because she says um, that she's like, I needed the gospel. All I needed 
was a loving savior and a heavenly father. She's like, that's all I needed. And that was sufficient. Not the fact that I needed to change my clothes, not the fact that I needed to stop having sex with women. What I needed was the gospel. And I feel that all sin just needs the gospel, um, regardless of what it looks like or regardless of whether it's more a more of an abomination to God or not. That doesn't matter. Sin is sin. And God is always a solution for that. Um, so, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Catalina, you... You said so many things that I really just wanted to touch on because you know what? It, it, you said if gays would just stop having sex and I thought, all right, well, if straight people would just stop looking at porn, you know, or if straight guys would stop having sex with indiscriminate women because when you look at 1 yes. Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about all the abominations that won't be in heaven. And so yes, you want to pick on the gay person? Well, why don't you look at the, in the mirror yourself and talk about your own issues with licentiousness, adultery, fornication? Trust Pride. me. It's not a straight person or a gay person that's going to make it to heaven. It's a redeemed person. And just because you're straight does not mean you've got a free ticket. And, 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 and I think that until we put all that back together, because um, I think Christianity has done a huge disservice to the gay community because we have said for years and decades, and I heard this many times, and that's why I left the church, is that gays can't change and that God hates them. And so, you know, the gays heard that and we said, all right, well, if we can't change then we we want equal rights and we want the right to marry. And so the gay community has been benefited greatly by the Christian community saying that they can't change. So now the Christian community separated us out of First Corinthians chapter six. So then the gay community said, OK, we acknowledge that. And, and, and that, I think, has been the momentum. But here's the here's the problem. It's a lie. The Christians have been lying because when you look at First Corinthians chapter six and it doesn't it doesn't just talk about the gays. It talks about all the sexual sin, which we all struggle with sexuality and, and attraction and, and sinful temptation of the flesh. But verse 11 was the one that was so pivotal for me. It says, such were some of you. And it was talking about the gays as well as the licentious and the fornicators. So there you go. It's like God hates behavior, but he doesn't hate the person. And, and that was really a powerful thing for me, too, for anyone that may be listening is that God doesn't hate gay people, and and gay people are not an abomination. It's the act of homosexuality that's an abomination to God because it pulls us away from the creative power that we were created with in the Garden of Eden. God, God created a man and a woman. That's the creative process, and it's the fullest representation of the Godhead because when a man and a woman have sex, it creates life. And, you know, sex mm -hmm. between two men does not create life. Sex between two women doesn't create life or or a transgender who mutilates their body beyond repair. They can't produce life. All of those things are an abomination to God because it destroys the image of God through the creative process between one man and one woman. So what I also love is that God does not hate a person who has same sex attraction because he understands that there are reasons why. I had same-sex attraction. There are reasons why I was transgendered. But he said, don't act on the behavior because the behavior is an abomination because it pulls you further away from the creative gift that God gave to each one of us. Psalms 139 that talks about the pursuit of God, how his thoughts towards us are as countless as the sands on the seashore. And he knit our delicate inward parts together in our mother's womb. Wow. So it's not a curse. It wasn't a trick. It wasn't a joke that God made me male, it was a blessing and a gift of the pursuit of God's love for me. And so when I would dress up as a little girl and when my, my aunt would tease my hair like a girl, what that did is the abomination was the fact that 
it gave me the sense of power that maybe I could be believable as a girl or maybe I could be convincing as a girl. And what that did is that pulled me away from the creative gift that God gave to me as a male. So um, when a man dresses up as a woman or a woman dresses up as a man, it's the expression of that that's the abomination of God because, again, it gives us this false sense that we could be believable. Look at these men and women that are mutilating their bodies and, you know, beyond repair and they can't go back. And, and, right. and that in itself is an abomination to God because here we are cutting and scarring this beautiful gift that God has given to us. So I have to see God as compassionate against the, the, the hateful God that I saw as a kid because I related my father to God because that was the only example that I had. But now as mm -hmm. I see it is that everything that is, that is a gift to us from God it's an abomination when we destroy that gift or when we reject that gift. And, and that's what homosexual practice does is it destroys the gift of life that God gave to each one of us to create. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, I have sat down with people um, and we have had a discussion and, and with a particular person who um, uh, she's a lesbian and she said, you know, but what is so wrong with me loving a woman? And I, I seriously, I just had to sit and think about it for a while. Cause I'm like, I, and, and this is this is my personal stance. So when you know the the line is love is love, like love yeah. is love, like to, yeah. yeah. I yeah. to me when I have sat down with people who are homosexual, I cannot take away from the depth of love that they experience. Now whether that is God's ideal love, it's not. Like I know that God in in His ideal and in His perfection of creation, that was not the love that He he created and the love that he desires however i cannot look at those people and tell them that they don't love each other they do love each other the couples that i have seen i can't take away from that i appreciate that you address that because i think for every gay person um that listens to somebody religious talking about you know that gay sex is an abomination or it's or it's an abomination to love another individual it's like you know what to address the fact that when somebody does love somebody, that's real. It is real. And, and I, think yeah. that, I think that that's one of the strongest bonds. And whenever you commit sexually to somebody, the glue works. You know, the Bible says that when, you know, the two shall be one flesh. So whenever you have sex, there are, uh, there are dopamines that's released in the back of the brain and you connect yourself to that. And so the more that I participated in that, whether it was indiscriminate sex or in a relationship, I was bonding myself to that person sexually, and so those are powerful experiences. However, is that love totally defined by the emotional attraction, or is it also the endorphins and the hormones that are released at the same time? I think they both have a role to play in that, but I think it's unfair to minimize to a gay person that if you're going to condemn them for the practice of, of who they're loving, that you have to affirm, you have to meet people where they are and you have to affirm to them that their relationship to them is real. That's a real thing. However, that still isn't the way that God wants us to live. Um, let me use pornography as a perfect example. There are men and women that are totally addicted to pornography and they can't go a day without it because of the dopamine that's been released as they're looking at this. But is this God's intention of true love? You know, do we love who we love? Love is love. You know, I love this thing. Is, is my love for that thing based out of that dopamine response and addictive drive or is that love truly based on on the actual principles of what God has has put in each one of us and I think that that is a really difficult thing to separate 
and and to tell yeah. somebody, you know, like, how dare you tell me that I can't love who I love? And I, let me give you an example. There was a, a girl who was in a relationship for 12 years with a woman, and this woman had back problems. And so Lisa, being the other woman, she's in a relationship with her, and she was a breadwinner for 12 years. She was the one that was working. Now her lover had a daughter. And her daughter got pregnant with a special needs child. So they needed a lot of attention. They also needed medical insurance. They needed medical coverage and a lot of, you know, finances to help support this, right? But when Lisa came to Jesus Christ, had a relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus says, you know, you're not living according to the way that, that, um, that you know, that I laid out for you. And she said, well, I can't leave my lover. You know, she needs my financial help. She needs my support. And now she's got a, a child that's pregnant with a child that needs even more help. And God said this to her because it doesn't even make sense. How can you tell a gay couple that they have to split up even if they have children so that they can honor God? And God said this to Lisa. He said, Lisa, if you don't leave her, I can't reach her. And that was so shocking to me. Like for some reason— Lisa had it in her mind that she was the only one that could provide for her lover and that, you know, is God's arm so short that he can't provide for her and that child that has special needs. But it wasn't until Lisa stepped out of the picture, even though God was speaking to her, that God couldn't speak to the lover either until Lisa acknowledged her codependence on this person and stepped out of the picture. So it's thank you, Catalina. It's a really difficult difficult issue to tell a gay couple that they have to split up to serve God. It's, yeah, it's really especially, sad. Especially when that has been their way of life for years. Um, and I, yeah. I, when people yeah. tell me that, when people like share that with me, with regards to homosexuality, I say to them, okay, I get where you're coming from, that yes, at the end of the day, the, the solution for the sin is that you split up, you stop doing what you're doing, that's fine. But like I said, there's more of a psychological aspect. Like you said, we can stop having sex having you know gay sex but what's going on in our mind and in our heart that doesn't fix the real problem of the heart which is that we need to surrender to Christ and, and find the completeness and the love in him but I give them the example I say you don't find you don't tell a fornicator and I'm comparing it because it's sexual sin I'm like you don't tell a fornicator who you're doing bible studies with you guys need to split up today you guys need to stop your fornicate. And, and that's what I don't like. There just seems like there's such extremes for one sex, sexual sin, as opposed to another sin, where I'm like, you need to be compassionate and understand that the person that has been fornicating with that person for the last 20 years is very emotionally attached to that person. And unless they can emotionally attach to God in that way, and you can build a relationship with him to the extent where when they have to weigh the two relationships up, they can say, you know what? I have a deeper love for God. I strive for what he has to offer me that I am willing to sacrifice that 20 year relationship, that 15 year relationship, or even all the psychological reasons behind the fact that I am in a homosexual relationship. I'm willing to sacrifice all that and deal with it and process it and find completeness and wholeness in Christ. You just can't throw it out there and be like, do that. Yes. Go Michael. So, 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 oh, this is so amazing. But you can't ask somebody to split up their relationship unless they've had an experience with Jesus Christ. Yeah. Without Jesus Christ, it's nothing. It's really nothing. It's not worth it, and it'll never work. And, and you know what? That is a profound difference. Um, I wanted to tell you this story, and I think I forgot it. But anyway, um, the bottom line was I needed something to replace that with. 
if I wasn't experiencing Jesus Christ, there's no way I ever would have been uh, able to leave my boyfriend behind and to leave that whole lifestyle behind. There's just no way. Oh, this was the story. So there was a couple and they got married and um, these two guys and they were Christian and they went to church and they loved God. And, you know, they they believed that God loved them for being a gay couple and they were monogamous to each other. Um, so a year later, their friend who was in their gay wedding and this was in, in Hawaii, uh, he sent them an anniversary card. Happy anniversary. Right. So they send them this card and their friends sent back a response. And I thought this was really powerful. They said, you know, we are no longer living as a gay couple and that we've been reading the Bible for ourselves. And we have determined that this is not what God wants for our lives. And we have split up, but we recognize that God had never intended us to be lovers, but that we could be friends in Christ together. And I thought, isn't that amazing? Because the bottom line is, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, doesn't matter how you live, live however you want. And and a lot of people focus on behaviors rather than relationship with Jesus Christ. And and again, it comes down to if you don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ, doesn't matter whether you're straight or gay, you know, you're it's not gonna yeah. be fulfilling. You're you're not gonna want to be in heaven because you know what? It's only those that are redeemed, only those that recognize that they need Jesus Christ in their life that's gonna make a difference. So if a couple is living together and they have three kids, guess what? They're not ready for baptism either. You know, they have to stop their their sexual behaviors. And so this isn't, um, you know, we're not singling out gay people. You know, this is inclusive of all sexual sin. And I think it's it's been it's been separated out for too long that it's really the same. Uh, whether we whether we thought that God hated gays and said that they couldn't change, whereas now the movement is God loves gays because they can't change. The message is still being given out there that the gays can't change, but that's not true. First Corinthians chapter six and verse 11 says such were some of you. So to lock ourselves in to say that we can't change and that that God will accept us that way. You are denying me and others the power of Jesus Christ to transform lives. And Jesus doesn't transform only the heterosexual people. He transforms everybody, mm -hmm. everybody's yeah. life. And so that's the sad message is that to accept somebody as gay and say that they can't change you have cut them off from the redeeming power of Jesus Christ to restore their life. And and that in yeah. itself is a message from the enemy. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, let's go on to, let's shift this a little bit now. And now that we've heard your story, we've seen how Christ has done so much for you and you've allowed Christ to do so much for you. Now let's, let's in addition to anything that we have already spoken um i really want to focus on people within the adventist church or within christianity who are struggling with same-sex attraction because uh, i know that i know people personally who do struggle with that and they find it very hard to find some sort of mentorship some sort of support someone to counsel them um i know that um there is a uh, by beholding his love um they do uh, support and counseling online uh, for people who are struggling with same-sex attraction and are wanting some support and some help. Um, but what would you say for young people or even adults? I know that there are adults within the church who struggle with same-sex attraction and even people that are married um, in heterosexual relationships who struggle with same-sex attraction. What would be some things that you could say for them practically that they can find so that they can they can find completeness in Christ like you did? Uh, what were some of the things that you maybe practically did or that you have seen as you have ministered around the world uh, to 
to people um, in the homosexual lifestyle? What are some things that you could give them advice and maybe a list of things that they could try uh, to work on um, and, yeah, to seek God with? All right, fam, I am splitting the interview at this point. So make sure to listen to part two of my interview with Michael. Michael. 